choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 250 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 12, Moonwalk 2, Part 1, Head Crater. Continuing from the previous episode, Pete and Al had just completed Apollo 12's first moonwalk. Now, back inside the lunar module, the crew did some housekeeping chores, ate dinner, set up their hammocks, and went to bed. This is Apollo Control at 122 hours, 57 minutes. During the change of shift briefing, we said goodnight to the uh, crew of Intrepid and also to Dick Gordon aboard Yankee Clipper. We last heard from uh, Yankee Clipper at about 122 hours. Uh, the CSM has now gone behind the moon, and we're scheduled to reacquire in about 34 minutes. Uh, Pete Conrad came up at uh, 122 hours, 15 minutes, and gave us a crew status report. He said that the crew is in super shape, that uh, Al Bean had taken one of the decongestant tablets prior to the EVA. And he said that uh, the crew planned to follow the... Uh, EVA timeline for their second EVA. As Pete lay in his hammock trying to execute the quote, good night's sleep end quote, portion of the mission profile, he thought to himself, I'm the third man to set foot on a world outside his own. I haven't even been here 12 hours and I'm sure I won't get back anytime soon, and they expect me just to go to sleep. To make it more difficult, Pete and Al were sleeping in their moon suits. They had been very concerned that they would break a zipper or rip a seam if they took them off and put them back on for EVA number two. If they did damage either of their suits, the second moonwalk would have been canceled, and nobody wanted that. So the astronauts just took off their helmets, boots, and gloves and laid down in their suits. It was as uncomfortable as sleeping in football pads. However, Pete noticed that it didn't seem to bother Al as much. He was snoring away in his hammock. Pete looked out the window at the black sky, blacker than any black he had ever seen. The stars weren't brilliant. He could hardly make them out at all in the harsh white light bouncing off the sand. It was all so cold, really, and as silent as silent could be. Here was Pete Conrad at the top, the very pinnacle of the NASA dream ride, with half of the Earth's population a quarter million miles away, probably looking up at the night sky right now, 
wondering what he and Al were doing, perhaps wishing they were there now. It should have provided comfort, company, but it didn't. Pete suddenly found himself lonely, unsettled, no one to talk to, nothing to do till the boys down in Houston gave them their wake-up call in six hours. Sitting still never sat well with Pete. It certainly didn't on the moon. Wide-eyed, he found himself thinking about his father, Charles, who had passed away just four months before launch. Charles had seen his boy ride the rocket twice, but couldn't hang on long enough to see him walk on the moon. Pete grabbed the extra cassette tape player NASA had allowed him to take on board the lunar module, but only after he pleaded and bargained for the extra 24 precious ounces of weight. Pete pressed the play button, keeping the volume super soft so he wouldn't wake Al. Pete hugged the player to his ear, closed his eyes, and let Patsy Cline sing him to sleep. In lunar orbit, after the successful burn, a relieved Dick Gordon began to prepare for sleep. Without his crewmates to help out, everything took longer than usual. It was another two hours before he finished dinner and the lengthy cleanup for the night. He thought, Now's the time to think up all sorts of fancy prose to tell people what it's like to be the lonesome man up here. But in truth, he was so tired, he was glad just to go to sleep. On the ocean of storms, five days, five hours, twenty-five minutes, mission elapsed time. Wide awake, Alan Bean lay in his spacesuit in his hammock. Pete was still asleep in his own hammock. Bean looked at his watch. It was 3.45 in the afternoon, Houston time. He and Conrad were halfway into a planned nine-hour sleep period. But sleep did not come easily to Bean. For one thing, his spacesuit was uncomfortable, even without the helmet and gloves. He would have preferred to take it off, but that wasn't a good idea, not with all the moon dust in the cabin. But the suit wasn't all that kept Bean awake. Bean had always felt that he thought more about the risk of the job than the other astronauts. Still, he knew you can never be sure what goes on in another man's mind, and it wasn't the kind of thing anybody ever talked about. It wasn't that he was anxious about anything in particular. It was more a heightened awareness of his surroundings. Bean heard the whine of Intrepid's cooling pumps. A few hours ago, he and Conrad had just fallen asleep when one of the pumps changed pitch and both of them awoke with a start, then went back to sleep. He looked up at Conrad's hammock. Even in a space suit, Pete's body barely weighed enough to sag the cloth. It lay almost flat in the lunar gravity. Before the flight, Conrad had told him, quote, Don't worry, if anything goes wrong, it'll be something you've never seen before. End quote. The lightning strike proved him right, but that had not been a harrowing experience for Bean, although... He thought wryly it would have been if he had understood what was really happening. P. 
Pete had understood, and he had been cool enough for all three of them. Of course, when it came to landing on the moon, Conrad had done his share of worrying. That was only natural, and when he did, Bean was able to be reassuring, because he knew that if anybody could pull it off, Conrad could. Bean didn't worry much about the piloting end of Apollo 12. In his mind, a mechanical problem was the thing to watch out for. All through the mission, even with the acceleration of the ride and the wonder of such incredible sights, Bean heard the background noises of his own awareness, reminding him that one of the rules of this game is that all machines eventually fail. For Bean, being on the moon, was laced with that awareness. Bean also thought about the TV camera. He wondered why it didn't work. He had no way of knowing that the full-strength lunar sunlight had burned the light-sensitive coating right off the Vidicon, and that it was beyond hope. The camera should have been ready in time for them to train with at the Cape, but all they had was a block of wood. All Bean knew now was somehow he had managed to screw it up, but there was nothing he could do about it now. Bean also thought about the surveyor. Over dinner, he and Conrad had talked about how the shadowed crater wall looked so steep that they might not be able to walk along it safely. They would have to wait and see. For now, Bean knew he had to get some rest or his performance would suffer. If you're not doing something productive, Bean told himself, you should be sleeping. Finally, he drifted into a light slumber. Meanwhile, in the top bunk, Pete Conrad soon awoke. Not because his mind was too active, but because he was in pain. The right leg of his spacesuit had been misadjusted before the flight and was slightly too short. Now, as he lay in his hammock, his suit bore down on his shoulders like a vice. He called down to Bean and told him they would have to do something about it before the next moonwalk. They got up, took down their hammocks, and then, while Conrad sat on the ascent engine cover, Bean set to work. The leg of the suit was adjusted by a set of cords laced around the calf like sutures. Bean had to undo each cord, which was tightly knotted because nobody wanted it to come undone, let it out a little and retie. The whole process took about an hour. Then Conrad called Houston, two hours ahead of schedule, and the two men began the new day. Hello, Houston Intrepid. How are you this morning? Good morning, Intrepid. How did you sleep? Short but sweet. We're uh, hustling right now, and uh, we're going to eat breakfast, have a little talk with you, and get about our business. Sounds good. Houston radioed some updates and another plan to attempt to fix the TV camera. But perhaps most importantly, there was an update to the EVA-2 Traverse map. Prior to launch, in order to save precious minutes on the surface, the geologist had planned four possible traverses for Conrad and Bean to follow. About two weeks before the flight, 
Conrad decided he wanted to carry maps, and the geologist had quickly drawn them up on a set of photographs. There wasn't time to get them on the official manifest, so Conrad arranged to have them stowed with his personal items. It turned out that Intrepid lay right on Traverse Number 4, which followed a sort of misshapen circle around several craters. The geologist had explained before the mission that the moon's craters were like natural drill holes, that the ferocious energy of meteorite impacts had blasted chunks of rock from the crust and scattered them across the moon. Each crater of the snowman was nothing less than a ready-made excavation into lunar history. By visiting different craters, the geologist hoped the moonwalkers would find out whether the lava flows that formed this region of the ocean of storms varied in age and composition. On Earth, a geologist would have spent many days or even weeks on this kind of exploration. But the timeline gave Conrad and Bean a bit less than two and one-half hours to get around the circle of craters. The craters that made up the circle were Head, Bench, Sharp, Halo, and the Surveyor Crater. Okay, all right, Houston, uh, how about giving me the uh, word on the geology now? Feet now, Houston, we're ready to go with the Traverse plan. We can uh, pick it up on uh, LSE 76G. Uh, I think that's the easiest way to follow it on your map. Have it right in my hand, go. Okay, first of all, uh, the two prime sites we consider on here are Bench and Sharp Craters. We can pretty much uh, follow the Traverse, which we discussed before. What I'd like to do is to give you the additional information that you don't have on your sheet and also perhaps to discuss how we'll fit the LSEP uh, revisit into this. Your first point along the traverse is head crater and which we call out F. What we'd like to do in, in view of the fact that you're going over towards the LSEP is to move that site over to the northwest rim of head crater and the coordinates there are R011.0. And then you will carry out what we already have uh, outlined for head crater. That's the two partial pans across head crater and uh, document the slumps, slumps and ledges. In addition to that, seeing as we have the PSE so closely located to that, we'd like to see if we can get a known signal for the PSE. So if you, if possible, roll a large rock into the crater and take a stereo pair of the rock rolling. Good recovery. Take a uh, stereo pair of the rock prior to rolling and a stereo pair of the track made by the rock after rolling. Yes, sir, we'll rock and roll. <laughs> hey, we've had a lot of training for that sort of thing on those geology trips we had. Pete and Al finished suiting up and vented the cabin to begin the second EVA, Moonwalk 2. Looks good. Go. Start your watch. Okay. Got it started? Yeah. Forward dump valve to open. Go. Dump it. 
Coming down, Pete. Cabin's coming down. Pressure's coming down. Cabin's one pound. Turn on 5.0, and the suit loop is 4.0, and the cabin is a half, about six tenths. Everything looks good down here, Pete. And your don't see us. Roger, looks good up here. Okay, there goes the uh, H2O. Delta through Delta. Got one, too. Yep, there it goes. seven Earth days. For those seven days, the sun slowly climbs in the black lunar sky, shrinking the shadows of rocks and craters. By lunar noon, temperatures climb to 225 degrees Fahrenheit. It takes another week for the sun to descend and then vanish below the western horizon. During the frigid two-week lunar night, temperatures plummet to 243 degrees below zero. Then the cycle repeats. When Conrad and Bean ended their first moonwalk, it was about 6.30 a.m. local moon time. It was nearly 13 hours later when they stepped outside for the second moonwalk. But in lunar time, only half of an hour had passed. The sun had climbed only a few degrees, and yet everything looked slightly different. It almost seemed to Bean that a new landscape had taken shape while they slept. He kept noticing rocks that he thought he'd missed the day before. Soon he realized that they were the same rocks under different lighting. The colors of the surface, the spectrum of grays and tans and browns, that changed as he looked in different directions, seemed a little more vivid now. Okay, Houston, uh, look, I'm looking at the uh, contrast chart in the shadow, and uh, I mentioned at three feet I could see all six. If I back up uh, maybe to ten feet, uh, as long as I stand here a moment and uh, tap my eyes, I can see all six also. Now the thing that seems to have the biggest effect on it how low the sun is. The sun is high now, and so I don't have to squint my eyes, particularly looking in that direction. 
yesterday looking into the same crater, even though it wouldn't be any darker in there because the sun was there, I, I would never be able to do that. Right now I can see all six marks, and I've taken the photographs. Visibility, uh, visibility here is uh, on Earth, really. You uh, adapt just as well, and uh, the only major difference I've noticed is the fact that when you're out here on these, uh, this area, if you look cross-sun, the moon appears one color, if you look down sun, it's another, if you look up sun, it's another. But uh, looking into uh, shadows or anything else like that, pretty much the uh, same as on Earth. Copy that, Al. But the real change was in the surveyor crater. No longer did its walls seem steep and forbidding. It had been transformed into a gentle bowl. Getting to the probe looked to be easy now. Hey, look at that surveyor, Al. That's not anywhere near as bad a slope. Oh, a shape. Hey, Houston, that surveyor looks a lot better today. As they prepared for their traverse, Conrad and Bean knew their skills as lunar field geologists would really be tested now. For years, and especially in the last few months, they had been schooled in mineral identification, the characteristics of impact craters, and the proper techniques for collecting samples. They had honed their skills on lava flows in Hawaii and the desert of West Texas. When they left Earth, they did so not only as pilots, but as surrogates for the geologist who would have given just about anything to be in their place on the moon. In preparation for all they were trying to accomplish, Conrad and Bean assembled a small assortment of gear, rock hammers, sample bags, core tubes, shovels, tongs, and maps, and loaded them upon their portable tool carrier. Then they set off on a journey across the craters. The first stop was the rim of the 360-foot head crater that was about 100 yards west of the lunar module. When they reached the northwest corner of the crater, they placed a gnomon there and took pictures. A gnomon is a gimbaled stadia rod mounted on a tripod so that the rod is free to point vertically. When deployed on the lunar surface, the shadow cast by the staff indicated sun angle, and therefore direction. The rod length and the painted scale provided a reference for estimating the sizes of nearby objects. Shades of gray on the rod ranged in reflectivity from 5 to 35 percent, and a color scale enabled more accurate determination of rock and soil colors by comparison. I got a rock over here. Okay, well, what are we supposed to get here? We probably ought to come over here to the other side. Uh, it looks the best and do a little trench and uh, compare some of the soil profiles. Okay, they wanted it. What? I, I've got an area right over here that looks like a good area to work in. Okay. These little white spatter type faders. They look like they're very fresh impact, like that little one right there. Yeah. That's a good idea. Let, let, let me go over here. There's three in a row, and let's work this area a little bit, which is the uh, corner of head crater they wanted us to work. Okay. And we can work right here and up to the top of it. If what uh, what corner is this? In the uh, northwest corner. Okay. 
right? As I indicated on the map, this. Okay, now I don't want to get any dirt in this thing. That's pretty interesting. Okay, a little secondary impact crater, huh? Okay, you want me to step uh, down from here? No, I'll, I'll get the cross done. Right? So just, well, you got also got to be careful with this uh, tool carrier. You said, did you want to put the Norman MP? Oh, yeah, let me have my tool. Okay, wait one. Here's your uh, grabber. Roger, Al, we copy that comment. And on the northwest rim, we're looking for two partial pans. Okay, that's all right. We'll get them. Shortly after placing the gnomon, the astronauts made a discovery. Bean looked at the places where Conrad's boots had dug into the gray soil and saw that they had uncovered a lighter gray just underneath the surface. Pete and Al could not hear the excited shouts of the geologist in the back room down the hall from Mission Control, but they knew they had found something significant. Before the mission, the geologist had told Conrad and Bean to look for evidence of a light-colored streak that was visible on the unmanned orbiter pictures, material that had probably been ejected from the impact that formed the huge Copernicus crater 230 miles to the north. Now it appeared they had found some. Hey, that's interesting. Look what you ticked. Got some lighter uh, material there. Oh, I sure did, didn't I? Yeah, that's the first time we've seen that. Now, but you know what it looks like here? It looks like it may be uh, this darker material. Well, I don't know. I'll have to photograph that, too. Let me get, okay, let me get this. Yeah, it used to be kind of interesting here. Pete uh, walked across one edge of the rim here, and we're about, oh, 50 feet inside the, the upper rim, and he uh, happened to scrape an area there with his foot into a uh, much lighter-colored uh, uh, soil, uh, like cement. Now, let me photograph this thing, and let's trench this whole area. Okay. I've got the gnomon in right here over my footsteps in the light soil versus the dark. And we can trench there. Okay, I just put it into 3D. And uh, let me get a picture of what you're doing. I'm getting a stereo pair of the thing. Okay. Got a trench right there, huh? Yeah, let me give a shovel. That's going to make an interesting shot. What can I give you, Pete? Well, Pete digs up. Uh, turn off right underneath the uh, surface. Uh, you're find some uh, much lighter gray oil. Uh, I don't exactly know uh, why at this point. And you can look around now and see several places where we've walked that the same things occurred. We never have seen this at all. Uh, well, that's going to make a good picture, Pete. Never seen this at all on this area we were before. Hey, that looks nice. Roger, Al, we copy that. You think it could be the sun angle? <laughs> no, not at all. This is definitely a change to a, a light gray as you go down, and the deeper peak goes, he's down about four inches now, it still remains this light gray. It's, uh, this soil must be of a different makeup than that we were on uh, outside the crater, because we have hey, this is different than around the spacecraft, because we've picked up all kinds of stuff around the spacecraft, and it's all the same color. Top and bottom, this is quite out of different. But this soil looks like it. I'll tell you what we should do here, Pete. But, but uh, to dig, 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 
Yeah, dig as deep as you can and then give me a sample of right out of the bottom because this will be something new. I'll put it in sample bag number uh, ID. Down about six inches and uh, built just light gray down there. Now, in the bag, you'll find some darker gray material that fell in off the side. There you go. Okay, as you move off, every once in a while I can see some white, but most of the time, uh, not, you kicked, hey, you kicked over a rock that had a white bottom and uh, quite a bit different than the top. Right behind you, you might want, you might want to take a picture of that. Quite a bit different than those others. Houston, you're going to have to budget our time now. How long do you want us to spend it at Head Crater? Because it looks like we could just spend all the time here if we want. That's what's bothering me. We could do that any place here on the moon. Pete, uh, we show that you're 58 minutes into the EVA, and we'd like to get you over to uh, Bench Crater and leaving there something on the order of uh, 1 plus 12. Uh, we can slip that a bit. So uh, we suggest you uh, finish up where you are, what you're doing there at Head, and move on. Okay, now where's the map? Uh, I got the map right here, Pete. Let you take a look at this. By the way, this is the smartest idea we came up with, Houston. This map just works great out here. Okay, let me take a picture of this rock. After the mission, this sample would let the geologists determine the age of the impact that had formed Copernicus, an important event in lunar history. Conrad knew that he and Bean could easily have spent an hour at any one of these craters, but the geologists wanted as many different types of rocks as possible, and the clock was ticking. So he and Bean took off running, heading south to Bench Crater. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 250 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 12, Moonwalk 2, Part 1, Head Crater. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you, number 250. I wanted to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. In case you haven't noticed, I've added more episodes to the archive podcast. We're now up to 54. The first 54 episodes of the podcast are now available on iTunes, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. Just look for the Space Rocket History Archive. I'll try to get some more up this month with the goal of catching up with the main podcast RSS feed. Today, we salute my Shooting Star Emoji donors. These donors have donated for five years in a row and receive a Shooting Star Emoji next to their name on the donors page. Thank you, Shooting Star donors, for your continued support. I really do enjoy giving out these longevity awards. I had several afterthoughts about this week's episode. First, I want to credit my sources, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Rocket Man by Nancy Conrad, The Apollo 12 Flight Journal, 
and the Apollo 12 Lunar Surface Journal, and Apollo and Eyewitness Account by Alan Bean. Okay, continuing, I mentioned the Nomen Pete and Al placed on the moon, several places there, and I tried to explain what it was and what it did. And I posted a picture of it, but I felt like I didn't do a very good job of explaining. So if you want to learn more about the Nomen, do a Google or Bing search for Apollo Nomen. And it's spelled kind of funny. Nomen is spelled G-N-O-M-O-N. That is G-N-O-M-O-N. So it's not, the G is silent, so that's a little tricky. Now I also mentioned uh, several times the LEC, and in case you were wondering what that was, it was the Lunar Equipment Conveyor. And the astronauts used it to move items from the surface to the lunar module and vice versa, and it was kind of like a pulley system. Now, how about that geological find they made this episode? Lighter colored soil beneath the surface. It seems like no big deal at first, but then that was one of the things that the geologists were looking for. That's one of the things they trained the astronauts to look for. It was a very interesting find for them, and Al Bean saw it first, so I guess he deserves the most credit. That sample that they brought back of it helped the geologists determine the age of the impact that formed Copernicus, which was significant in lunar history. So we're going to score one up for Apollo 12 on science. At least one up, okay? (laughs) All right. Next week, we will continue with Apollo 12's second moon walk. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was pleased to receive several new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Rosemary W. donated at the Orion level. Chris N. donated at the Apollo level and earned his satellite emoji. Hans W. from Austria donated at the Apollo level. Roy B. from the UK donated at the Mercury level and earned his moon emoji. Brendan C. donated at the Mercury level. David W. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level and earned his moon emoji. Michael W. from the UK donated at the Vostok level. David H. from Oxfordshire in the UK pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. And Paul N. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Our Patreon donors have now reached 167, with a goal of reaching 218 by the end of the year. And our overall donors for 2018 have reached 235, with a goal of reaching 418. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. To support the podcast, go to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have already donated for 2018, I certainly appreciate it. have an item to give away this week. It is the official Space Rocket History 
logo vinyl refrigerator magnet. It has a picture of the official SRH logo with the rockets. To select the winner, Mrs. SRH gave every 2018 donor a number. Then she put it in Google's random number generator and got the number for Wayne and Naomi Holmes. Wayne and Naomi, if you would, email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address. All right, now for some fun. I am delighted to report the podcast has completed over five years in service and that we have posted 250 episodes. Now, that is a hectic pace. Producing about one episode per week for five years is pretty demanding. And also, I'd like to announce that we have had over 2 million downloads, over 1,400 Facebook likes, and over 1,000 Twitter followers. One of the early goals for the podcast, which was completing Apollo 11, was accomplished this year. And we actually created a new separate podcast called Space Rocket History Archive to cover episodes that no longer fit on the main podcast RSS feed. The Archive podcast has grown very quickly, and it looks like I may have to buy some more server bandwidth for it very soon to keep up with the amount of downloads demanded, which unfortunately means it's going to cost twice the price, but it's a good thing to grow. We added a podcast store this past year, and that can be found on the homepage under the Store tab. And finally, we added the Space Souvenir Weekly Giveaways. <laughs> so that, that was uh, quite a bit of accomplishments over the past 50 episodes. The podcast has now been heard in 200 countries. About half of the listeners are from the U.S. and half international. The top 10 countries for podcast downloads were number 1, U.S., 2, UK, 3, Germany, 4, Australia, 5, Canada, 6, Japan, 7, Sweden, 8, New Zealand, 9, France, and 10, Netherlands. It still amazes me that the native language for five of these countries is not English. I admire you listeners for being able to understand an American speaking English with a southern accent. Okay, that's enough statistics. Every year... I get the question, how long will the podcast last? How far will you go? When I began the podcast, I had the idea of taking about 20 episodes to reach Apollo and completing the podcast in maybe two or three years. Now, I'm five years in, and I am nowhere near the finish line. Nor have I decided that where the finish line is. I definitely plan to get through Apollo 13, and after that, the next major goal is to complete Apollo 17. I want to complete all the Apollo moon missions. Now, we're talking probably years to get past Apollo 17, so uh, it's not, I'm going to be doing this for a good while, I think. Now, will I end it after Apollo 17, or will I continue through Skylab, Salyut, Mir, the shuttle, etc.? Right now, that seems so far away that I, I'm not sure what I will do. Now, the podcast currently consumes about 30 to 40 hours a week of my time, 
And Mrs. SRH spends about 10 hours a week on it helping me out. So we are definitely putting in the time. But it has been a wonderful experience, and I have met many people all over the world. I know some of you have been with me since the podcast began in 2013. I want to thank you for coming along on this journey and sticking with me. Those of you who sent in encouraging notes, thank you. It helps a lot to be appreciated. I also want to give my greatest thanks to the donors who support the podcast financially. I can say with certainty the podcast would not have made it this far without the support of the donors. I also want to thank all my listeners and subscribers, and I want to thank those who have shared the podcast and those who took the time to give the podcast a five-star rating on iTunes. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And, of course, I don't want to forget Mrs. SRH and Dave down at Aussie HQ. I think that's everything. So now the moment you've been waiting for, it, it will be our Tang ceremony that we have after each 50 episodes. Now, this year, as we did last year, we have a special guest. Mrs. SRH is here to partake in the ceremony as well. So if you will be participating with me, pause the podcast now and go get your Tang or other orange-colored beverage. We will wait. Okay, I hope everybody's ready that is planning on participating. Our first thing, this, Mrs. SRH is here and we're ready to go. Uh, say hello, Mrs. SRH. Hello, everyone. All right. She's going to pour the water in her glass. And I pour the water in my glass. All right, thank you. Now, this tang was actually from an anonymous donor. And I'll thank them again for sending it in. Okay, I am opening up the Tang container. This one is a plastic container that the lid screws off of. It was uh, bought from Amazon by the anonymous donor. All right, Mrs. SRH is now going to add some Tang to her glass. One big spoonful there. And she's going to stir it just a little bit. All right, I'm going to add some to my drink. I'm going to take a one scoop too because it is a pretty small amount of water we have in here. Now I will stir it up. Most all of the powder is dissolved now. It tastes much better when you don't have powder in it. Okay, we will now make our toast to 250 episodes. <sighs> Delicious. Thank you for participating in the every 50 episode Tang ceremony. Thank you, Mrs. SRH, for all your help in putting out the podcast. It was my pleasure. Okay, this concludes the Tang ceremony. And to wind things out, I wanted to let you know that I was pleased to see the podcast received six new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past week. And I want to sincerely thank those six anonymous people who gave the podcast the all-important five-star rating. 
Also, if you're enjoying the Archive podcast, I would appreciate it if you could go ahead and give it a five-star rating as well. And I want to thank Univex and OC Flyboy for taking the time to write a nice review and giving the Archive podcast a five-star rating. I appreciate it. Okay, that is it for episode 250. Next week, we will begin the long march to 300 episodes. I will do my best to have episode 251 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.